Today we've come to the second of seven letters that Jesus dictated to John for the seven churches in what they then called Asia. Uh, we call it Turkey. And last, as I said last week, each week as we read these seven letters, it's going to be like waiting for the mailman to come. Because these letters weren't just written just for the churches back in Turkey in John's day. They're also written for the church of today. And I reckon that we're going to discover that one or more of these letters from Jesus is actually written to our church. And each week as we read these letters, we're going to be asking ourselves the question, is this letter today a letter from Jesus to us? Is this a letter to Bush disciples? Or is it a letter to one of the churches who are listening to this on a video? Or is it a letter to somebody who's listening to this on their iPod? And today's letter is the letter to the church at Smyrna. So let me read that to you. And it's coming from Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 8 to 11. And to the, church, the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and last, who died and came back to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has, has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, when I first began preparing for today, I quickly read through that letter to the church at Smyrna, and I immediately thought to myself, right, well, we don't need to spend too much time on that one. You see, I didn't think it was really that relevant for us. After all, it's all about persecution, and our church isn't being persecuted. But then I stopped and, and I prayed about it and I thought about it. I found myself wondering, what, what if the church in Smyrna had had the same attitude as me? What if they just dismissed this letter out of hand? How would they have ever been ready for the persecution when it hit them? And it did hit them. And it hit them hard. And it went on for a long time. It went on into the next century at least. In the second century... Polycarp was the Christian bishop of Smyrna, right? So this bloke is basically the head of that church right there in Smyrna. And somewhere around the year 156 AD, Polycarp was burned at the stake and was pierced by, the, by a spear for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor. And this is what he said. He said, 86 years I've served him, meaning Jesus, and he never once wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And much of the book of Revelation is about preparing the Christian church for the persecution that is to come. In fact, it's not just the book of Revelation. It's, it's a lot of the New Testament itself. A lot of what we read in the New Testament is doing exactly that. I preach my way through whole books of the Bible and 
you should be well aware of that by now. It takes months and months and months to get through a series. But I do that so we don't miss anything out. And that way, I also preach on topics just as often as what God wants to bring them up. Otherwise, I'll end up preaching on my hobby horses all the time. But it seems to me um, that much more often than what I would ever choose to preach on it, we're learning about persecution. It just keeps coming up over and over and over again in many of the books of the New Testament. The persecutions of the disciples of Jesus will increase. And the purpose of this book of the Bible is to prepare the Christian church, that is, the disciples of Jesus, even us here, to prepare us for persecution. And the church at Smyrna was one of the first churches in its region to encounter severe persecution, including victimization, imprisonment, social and financial persecution, and execution. So this letter was readying them for the time of persecution that was right on their doorstep. They'd already had glimpses of it, but in the near future, it was going to get far, far worse. And I guess for us here, we know that there are places in the world where persecution is severe. And let us not minimise the true persecution that they are under by claiming that we're being persecuted. But we do catch little glimpses of it here. But the revelation of Jesus Christ is telling us to expect these persecutions to increase. Now, a lot of us, when we think about persecutions, I've often heard people say when we talk about persecutions, well, I hope I'll remain faithful to the Lord, but how do any of us know until the time arrives? And that is the reason why lessons like today are so important for us. You see, Jesus, he's not teaching us to be brave. It's about increasing our faith. But this increase in faith might not be the kind of increase in faith we're expecting. You know, some of us, we might think, okay, well, if I'm going to have faith, I have faith that I will not be persecuted. I believe that this isn't going to happen. Or I believe that it's not going to be that bad but that's not an increase in faith the increase in faith that Jesus is pointing us towards here is to shift what we believe about life and death to shift what we believe about the present and eternity so that when persecution does happen we will stand firm on the eternal promises of God and win. We might die, but it's wonderful that physical death is the very worst that the devil can do. To use the phrase that the Salvation Army like to use, death is a promotion to glory. I like that phrase. You've heard it before? Some of you have. Death is a promotion to glory for a Christian. All right, so let's get into this letter. As with the other letters, the letter to the church at Smyrna begins with Jesus describing himself. And as he describes himself, we're already getting a little bit of a hint as to what kind of faith he's going to be pointing us towards. He says, 
the words of the first and the last. All right, Jesus is assuring them that he is the divine sovereign, the king over history. He is the first and the last. In other places, he is described as the Alpha and the Omega. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Nothing is going to happen to these Smyrnans that he doesn't allow. By the way, what is the plural for people who live in Smyrna? Is it Smyrnans, Smyrnians, Smyrns, or what is it? I don't know. I'm just a simple country preacher, so you'll just forgive me if I've got it wrong. You'll know what I mean. Smurfs. Is that what somebody, who said that? I don't think it's Smurfs, no. All right. But he also described himself as the one who died and came back to life. So what sort of faith do you suppose he's going to be pointing us towards? Faith in the resurrection, of course. The Smyrnans too, even if they died for their faith, will win eternal life because they've remained faithful. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself there. So he describes himself. Next, he congratulates them for their good works. And as he does this, we can learn a little, little bit about what's going on in Smyrna already. He said, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Let me explain that. In the early years of the Christian church, and probably to some extent still today, the Jews hated Christians. Now, hate is a very strong word, and I don't use it lightly. It began with the crucifixion of Jesus, and then we had zealots like Saul, who later became a Christian himself. But before Saul became a Christian, Saul used to travel from city to city, hunting Christians down to have them arrested. And at times, he liked to oversee their execution. Why did they hate the Christians so much? Well, in their view, these Christians were corrupting and making a mockery out of their Jewish faith. These Christians were laying claim to this Jesus, who in their eyes was a blasphemous criminal, but they were claiming that this Jesus was the Messiah. Now, he's supposed to be a Jewish Messiah, and you're trying to make a criminal the Messiah, and the Jews wouldn't have it. And then to make matters worse, from their perspective, these Christians were trying to steal people away from true Judaism uh, to worshipping this Jesus character. And they were then preaching to the Gentiles and bringing them to faith in this Jewish God, but they weren't making them keep all of the rules and the regulations that, that makes a Jew a Jew. And they hated it. And they're filled with jealousy and venom. And even today, the Jews don't want Christians to be dabbling in their traditions. Uh, for example... Sometimes on Thursday night before Good Friday, some churches have a kind of Passover meal called a Passover Cedar, and, and we've organised those a number of times. And the Jewish community are pretty much offended that Christians would do that. And some denominations in their discussions with the views have, have agreed, we won't let any of the congregations of our denomination do that anymore because we know it's offending you. So... How were the Christians being persecuted? 
for those listening on the thing and don't know what's happened, the music nearby is just blown basically into my face. Okay. So how were the Christians being persecuted in Smyrna? Well, we're talking about a time in the Roman world where Roman emperor worship was just getting a bit of a go on. And it was becoming law that every individual was to worship the emperor, to burn incense to them or, or sacrifice to them as an act of worship to the emperor. But not the Jews. The Jews would never do that. Um, and the emperors, being practical people at time, knew that that would be a battle they would never win. And so they gave a special concession to the Jews um, so they didn't have to burn incense or make an, uh, make an offering to Caesar to honour him as a god, but they still had to do it. They just had to honour them him as their ruler instead of honouring him as their god. Everybody else had to honour Caesar as their god. Now, up until this point, Christianity had been seen as a sect, or like a subset, of Judaism, right? They were seen as Jews and this Christianity is just part of this Jewish religion. And so they flew under the radar of Rome and they also were living by that concession. They, they didn't have to make offerings to Caesar as God. And one very likely scenario is that the local Jews, who didn't like the Christians very much, started dobbing them into the Roman leaders and, and in fact there's evidence that this did happen. And, and by saying you know they're not Jews. You think they're one of us. They're not one of us. We won't have anything to do with them. And yet you're letting them get away with not worshipping the emperor? Oh, look at the disrespect there. And, and they build up all these stories against the Christians. And it appears that the persecution was at the hands of the Roman authorities, but at the instigation and the satisfaction of the Jews. And that's probably why Jesus said that he knows the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Right? The local Jewish synagogue were not doing God's work. They were doing the work of the devil. The Jewish synagogue here locally at Smyrna, they weren't meeting as God's people. They were meeting as the devil's people. Now, that's a pretty harsh thing to say, isn't that? A, that's a harsh accusation, isn't it? But it's just the sort of thing that Jesus would say. In John chapter 8, Jesus had said something very similar. He'd had an argument with the Jewish leaders and Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. But instead, you're trying to kill me. And then he went on to say, if God was your father, you'd love me. But because I came from God. Your father is the devil. And as we get further into this book of Revelation, we're going to discover who is behind the persecution of the church. And I don't think it's going to be any surprise to us that it's the devil. It's Satan himself who is behind the persecution of the Christian church. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus had said that there is a time that is coming when brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now what 
possible event could make something like that happen, that, that even our close family would betray us to death, that they would betray us to be executed because we're choosing to follow Jesus. This is what a spiritual attack looks like. I suspect that Satan gets blamed for a lot of stuff that he's not actually responsible for. I suspect he gets blamed for a lot of stuff that's our own bad choices, for a lot of stuff that is our own rebellion against God, and for a lot of stuff that is just the common toughness of life that we all encounter. But here we are left with absolutely no doubt there are times when Satan does attack. And one of these times is the persecution of the disciples of Jesus. This is a spiritual attack of the devil himself. So, what tribulation had they been suffering up until now? Tribulation means oppression or affliction. How were they being oppressed? How were they being afflicted? Well, it was actually pretty nasty stuff. Um, economic hardship for starters. Imagine what it would be like if you were banned from trading, um, if nobody was allowed to employ you, or, and there was no unemployment benefits, there was no pension. Imagine that you had no way to earn money, no way to buy food, no way to feed your family and you became utterly destitute. By the way, as the influence of Islam has grown throughout the world in recent years, and especially where Sharia law and jihad is in process, um, this is the story of, of many Christians. Uh, Christians are sometimes given three choices. One, convert to Islam. Two, execution or prison. Or three, something called dimitude, that's D-H-I-M-M-I-T-U-D-E. And I heard a speaker once speak about this, and he's written a book called The Third Choice, which is all about the suffering that Christians have under Islamic rule. And it's all about this dimitude, where you become a second-class citizen. You lose basically all of your rights. You become fair game for criminals and thugs because you're not gonna get protected by the authorities. You get taxed a lot higher than your Muslim neighbours simply because you're a Christian. And you're not allowed to visibly practice your faith. You can sort of do it behind closed doors as long as you don't get found out. And in extreme circumstances, it can become very much like slavery. And I suspect that's the sort of conditions that the church in Smyrna were under. And Jesus said, I know your poverty. Right? You can't have anything but poverty when that happens. I know your poverty, but you are rich. By God's standards, you don't have to have a big bank account to be rich. You don't need tens of thousands of acres to be rich. You don't need a nice car or a fancy house or a big share portfolio. You don't have to have access to top-tier health care. You don't have to be able to afford to go to university to be rich. In fact, you and your children may go to bed at night that hunger pains because you couldn't afford to feed your family and yet God still calls you rich. Now, 
This just flies in the face of the whole prosperity doctrine which is so popular in much of the world today. That prosperity doctrine that says God wants you to be rich. Well, there is truth in that. God does want you to be rich. But God's not interested in physical wealth. The Lord is concerned with... He he wants us to be rich in love. He wants us to be rich in grace. He wants us to be rich in eternal life. He wants us to be rich in good works. He wants us to be rich in righteousness. He wants us to be rich in faith and faithfulness. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And so Jesus congratulated them that that according to the world standards, they were poor, but they were rich where it counted. And that's what he congratulated them for. And in a few weeks' time, we're going to be reading another letter. This time it's going to be a letter to the church in Laodicea. Only in that letter, Jesus is going to be getting up them. Because they are exactly the opposite to the church in Smyrna. They prided themselves on their physical wealth. Look at us. We're so wealthy. We have so much going for us. But Jesus could see that they were spiritually bankrupt. But that's for another week. As for the church in Smyrna, Jesus didn't have a bad word to say about them. You know, some people reckon... If you're following God's will and everything's turning out, then everything will turn out just fine and it's not going to be hard work. And and many people talk about the open door, closed door principle. In my experience, and biblically, occasionally that is true. Most often it is not. There is nothing easy about the Christian life. There is nothing easy about following God's will. There is nothing easy about living righteously. And the church at Smyrna is an excellent example of this. Jesus didn't have a bad word to say about them. But what was happening to them? They had all sorts of hardship. And there was more hardship coming upon them. Why? Well, the devil hates it when Christians are faithful to God and that's when he attacks. There were only two churches out of the seven who Jesus didn't have a bad word to say about them and both of those churches were being persecuted. And it was going to get worse. Jesus said to them, do not fear. Now, if God said that to you, do not fear, what would you expect him to follow it up with? Do not fear because it's just about done now. You're just about out of the darkness and it's going to be easier. Do not fear, things are going to get better. Or do not fear, I will save you out of your suffering and you will not suffer. Is that what we would expect? That's not what he said. He said, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying, don't be afraid. 
Your suffering is going to get a whole lot worse and some of you are going to be killed. So don't be afraid. Are you crazy? Well, by worldly standards, that is crazy. But by faith, the Smyrnans will not be afraid. Because by remaining faithful to the Lord, even if they were ex- executed, even if their family were executed, they win eternal life. Jesus said, I will give you the crown of life. Now, that crown that he's describing, it's not a kingly crown. like It's, it's not the diadem. It's not gold and silver and jewels. The crown that he's talking about is the laurel wreath, right? The, the, the crown of leaves that they used to put on the winner of an athletic games. So by our standards, we're talking about a gold medal, okay? So he's saying, you die, but you win. But let's backtrack a bit. He said that they would be tested for, for 10 days. Now, that doesn't sound very long, does it, 10 days? Now, I can't be certain, but I sort of suspect that that's not a literal literal 10 days. We talked about this in the introduction to Revelation, how a lot of the time periods represent different things. And the book of Revelation takes us back quite often to references from the Old Testament and especially from the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, there was a period of 10 days, which was a time where they were being tested. And so I suspect that what Jesus is saying here is is just giving the 10 days as a confirmation that, hey, this severe affliction is a test. What was being tested? Their faithfulness. Would a true disciple of Jesus really remain faithful if their very lives were at risk and they passed the test they proved to be faithful now this kind of faithfulness it's not just bravery it's a faithfulness that comes about by truly knowing and understanding what it means for Jesus to be our saviour Life is short. Eternity is forever. Jesus has saved us from death. It's truly believing this. And Jesus gives us a challenge to listen to what he's saying and to accept it. As he says so many times, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, right? So he's actually challenging us at this point. If you've got an ear, listen to what I'm saying. What am I saying? The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, this whole idea of being a conqueror, you know, looking at it through worldly eyes, we might go, well, the conqueror is the one who, who when, when they come to, get, to arrest them and, and take them off to be executed, he's the one who pulls out his gun and shoots them all and gets away. He's conquered them. No, that's not what it means to be a conqueror by Jesus' standards. The one who conquers is the one who remains faithful to Jesus in every situation. Even at the threat of death. 
And the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second death? What's this second death business? Well, we're going to find out about this second death later in Revelation. But to put it simply, the second death is hell. And hell is a very real place of everlasting torment. In the second century, when Polycarp was threatened with fire, right, that fellow that I mentioned before who actually came from Smyrna, when he was threatened to be burned at the stake, he replied, You threaten me with fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And today... There are Christians all over the world who are suffering torment. But they do it willingly, knowing that compared to eternity, it's only for a little while. And even if they die for their faith, they are raised to eternal life. They are given the victor's crown and they will never, ever suffer torment ever again. There's people in the world who are in that place now. And we, living in the wealth and comfort and safety of one of the least persecuted nations on earth, we need to know this. And we need to prepare for this. I used to believe that severe persecution in Australia was a very long way away. I don't believe that anymore. I believe it could be just around the corner and we're, and we're already beginning to catch little glimpses of it even now with attacks of Islam, uh, the negativity towards Christians in the social sphere, the way that civil suits are being brought against Christians by special interest groups who are anti-Christian and by the prosecution of Christians in the law courts and tribunals for exercising their Christian convictions and and as they do that, breaking state and federal anti-discrimination laws. We're already catching little glimpses of persecution. And I believe it's coming in a bigger way and we need to be ready for it. How do we ready ourselves for persecution? How do we get away from that mindset? You know what I said before about most of us, a lot of us have the attitude of, well, how I know if I'll remain faithful until the time comes? How do we get away from that mindset? I believe it begins by making the commitment of faith now. That Jesus is the most important person in the whole wide world. And we begin living faithfully for him now. And just like Polycarp could say, 86 years I've served him and he never once wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And as we live day by day, experiencing the love of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, how could we but come to the place where we too would say, How could I ever deny him? Jesus Christ has been so faithful to me. He's walked with me every day of my life. 
How could I ever deny him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are forever faithful to us. When troubles and persecutions come, help us to stand firm in the faith you've given us. Lord, we're not asking for bravery. We're asking for you to increase our faith. Lord, as we live with you day by day, Lord, as we experience your faithfulness towards us, as we experience your love and grace and mercy and your constant care, Lord, increase our faith so that if and when that day ever comes, we too would be able to say, how could I ever deny my Lord and Saviour? Lord, please bring us to this position of faith even now for your sake and your glory. Amen.